to the Go Home, You're Drunk edition of The Bloke and the Bird. Okay. You try to tell me in all of the prep for this show that not almost every story we're going to talk about for the next hour is Go Home, You're Drunk. Not every single story. A lot of the stories. The vast majority. Yeah. Okay. Now, I should tell our listeners that this is the second time we are actually recording the show. There was a technical glitch. It was an awesome show. It was it was phenomenal, and you will never. It, it won't it. even be in the archive somewhere. The unheard yeah. show, but it opened when we first did it, talking about the weather. Mm-hmm. We live in Northeast Ohio, and we are experiencing Mother Nature is completely drunk. In the last 24 hours, we have had sunshine, rain, thunder, snow, snow, accumulating snow, ice. Um, we actually had all four seasons in one day. It really and truly was. It warmed up. It was nice, comfortable temperature after the rain went away. And then all of a sudden it got cold and we got snow. Yes. Um, I might have mentioned that Michael should clear the driveway last night. He had choice four-letter words that would end our clean rating. So apparently he was not in the mood. Well, you know, it also it melted overnight. So it there did. was that. It did. The driveway is, did. The grass didn't. Which is a little odd, snow melting overnight. But it's snowing again now as we, we talk. But we have closed the windows so that we won't have a running commentary of the how many seasons can we see in one day. So, given the fact that it's sucky outside, we have been entrenched for this entire weekend in all things motorsport. Essentially, and you know, one of the other really good things, and we'll get to it a bit later, is between the time that we had originally recorded and we are now re-recording, there have been some fairly significant news stories that have broken. See, and that's why... The technical difficulties are a blessing in disguise. It means that we will get to talk about these things a full week before we would have originally talked about them. But before we get to them, okay, have some very important news. Excellent. I don't know if you heard that this late-breaking development has happened, but Azerbaijan has decided to scrap daylight savings time amid economic pressure. As Azerbaijan goes, so should the United States. Now, that wasn't where I was expecting you to go with that. I kind of figured, (laughs) what the heck does this have to do with racing? But no, you decided to go some other way. This actually does have a very important impact on racing, and in particular on Formula One. Well, they were going to be a twilight race, right? They were, and... As a result of the change to scrap daylight savings time, that meant that the original scheduled 6 p.m. start time for the uh, brand new European, well, the return of the European Grand Prix this time in Baku, Azerbaijan, um, would need would had to have been changed because sunset would be happening at 8:14 p.m. So it would be too dark. So as a result, the race time start time has been moved up an hour to 5 p.m. local time. Okay. So that they can at least get far enough into the race that uh, they won't have to worry about losing all the light since the, you know, they're the not setting up a, a, a lighted track for this. The track is not actually lit. 
you got to assume, though, that there's still going to be some pretty significant shadows and stuff. I mean, it is running through downtown Baku. True. So eh, it could be interesting. And this is a narrow course, tight course, and a fast course. Yes, it should be. But uh, please change your calendars to reflect the new start time of 5 p.m. Have you done that to our calendars yet? Because you know how I get when we don't have correct start times in our calendar system. No, I don't, because this is actually the first year that we've ever had correct start times in our calendar. (laughs) (laughs) You know something? The listening public did not need to know that. Well, they did. Anyway. Anyway, I am morally opposed to daylight savings time, so therefore I think as Azerbaijan goes, so should the United States. I I think some of our presidential candidates would have a problem with Azerbaijan <laughs> setting um, national policy and initiatives for the U.S. They possibly should or could. Um but you know, you could also say so goes Arizona. <laughs> so should they That'd be a different the that would be a different story. But yeah. Indiana. No. You know, there parts are only of two counties, I believe, in Indiana that are still opposed to daylight savings. You know why we will not get daylight aren't there parts of Florida? No. Oh no, that's right. It's just parts of Florida that are in a different time zone from the rest of Florida. That's Correct. all of Florida. They're in central time is. zone. That's that's all it is. Okay. Yeah, no, it's only a couple of counties now in uh, Indiana. The majority of the state is actually following daylight savings time, unlike Arizona as an entire state that denies its existence. As a protest. And I'm very agreeable to that plan. If it just wasn't so hot in Arizona, I would consider moving there as my own protest. Scorpions. That would be the other reason, possibly snakes. Well, we have snakes here. Yeah, but I can deny their existence here. Oh, is that it? Um, anyway anyway and lack of snow and um you know seasons yes well you have in the mountains hot season and you have dust season yeah those are kind of like california seasons where (laughs) you have fire season (laughs) so moving on bernie has been talking a lot this week and we've got some really good words from bernie coming up okay well i don't know if Good Do you remember those old, old commercials when E.F. Hutton speaks, yes. everyone listens? Yes. Sadly, when Bernie speaks, everyone grabs onto something hoping that it doesn't upset the apple cart. It is awful some of the things that come out of that man's mouth. Well, the first thing that we got this week was um, Bernie has confirmed that there are at least two interested parties interested in purchasing CBC Capital stake in Formula One management, and he does say that a sale price for the sport has been agreed to. It's expected to be somewhere between 6 to $7 billion. Sounds like a bargain, really. Well, especially since I think you're only getting about a 35% stake in, in the sport. For that six to seven billion dollars, what would happen if Ferrari bought it? I don't think they would be allowed to. I think e- probably EU regulations would prevent them from even having that opportunity. Possibly, you know, but are, that doesn't mean that Ferrari can't set up a shell corporation that would then purchase FOM. I, I, again, I I think the EU would take a dim. Keep in mind, part of the reason why Ferraris or, or not Ferrari why. Uh, F1's management structure is the way it is is because of EU antitrust regulations that forced 
the FIA to change their controlling stake. And they don't have a controlling stake in the sport anymore because of that. So for that same reason, I don't think Ferrari would get that opportunity. Possibly. Um, Pat Simmons over at Williams has come out. He's a smart man. Speaking of Ferrari, um, he has complained that the model that Haas has taken to F1 to, to come into the sport of buying everything from Ferrari, uh, he says that that model could erode the status of the F1 constructors. I can see his point. Um, I think you have to consider the source a little bit too. But I can see his point. I mean, it's a radical shift in the model. However, you cannot deny that that becomes the right model for people able to enter the sport because if you don't give people the ability to enter the sport with a reasonable cost and a reasonable return on their investment people aren't and look at the last three teams that joined the sport two out of the three aren't there and one's barely holding on yeah you know it's not just a matter of lowering the the bar to enter the sport it's lowering the bar to enter and actually be competitive as opposed to just being an obstruction on the track. Correct. Because truly, I think these new teams that, and these smaller teams that are nipping at the heels of the mid-pack that actually are competitive for points, they're good for the sport. They're very good for the sport. I mean, that's some of the best racing is sitting there in the middle of the pack where people are jockeying for advancement from the back to the f- to the mid, from the mid to the front. You know, that's that's some really good drama around the sport. Now, I did say consider the source because yeah. Williams has a particular history about their the value of the constructor within Formula One. It, it they have a very big history when it comes to that, and exactly how much folks can. Um, purchase to come in um yes originally William, frank williams started with a car that he essentially purchased from another constructor and ran that was his first car but since then he has been very big about grassroots development of their an internal development of everything that they do now they're they do believe that it's okay for some shared systems to be out there and they should be since Williams supplies a few very key components to Formula One cars. I believe, like, a good chunk of the ERS controlling systems is, like, Williams control systems. So, you know, but Williams' position is also that it's one thing for these high dollar value items that have a minimal impact on the overall performance of the car, especially when everybody has them, as opposed to, oh, the chassis. Well, if you think about it, think about the Haas model compared to the Williams model. Mm -hmm. They are almost in diametric opposites. The Haas model is I'm going to buy everything I can possibly buy and make as little as humanly possible to get myself on the track. Mm -hmm. Williams takes the other other side of that coin and says, I'm going to make everything I can possibly make and only buy the things that I can't manufacture myself. I mean, they're not making engines. They're buying a Mercedes engine. Um, But they buy as little as humanly possible, and Haas is buying as much as humanly possible. 
And I think that that's where you see that diametric opposite. And if Haas winds up competing with Williams, I think that's where Pat Simmons is really concerned. And I don't think that they're there yet. I don't think that they're that Haas is at the point where they're going to really be competing for third. Um, no, I don't. I mean, yes, Haas is going to be the big story because they're going to do probably better than any startup team has done in the past. But still, and by the way, Gunther Steiner, who Gunther. is yeah Gunther, uh, he is the team principal mm-hmm. for uh, Haas F1. He came out in, uh, in the run up to this week's race and said that he believes that all of the or he's taking all of the criticism regarding how the team has stood up and and everything that they have done as a compliment. <laughs> because yes. it's a sign that they have done something right. Because well, if everybody's complaining, success. then maybe you've done something right. And there's a good point there. I don't think the man's a stupid man. Well, you don't want to say if everybody is complaining, because that brings us to our next story. And we have heard this complaint many times before, but this week I think it carries some special significance. Special? Monisha Keltenborn, team principal over at Sauber, has come out this week and said that the team's financial struggles show that there is a fundamental flaw in Formula One. Now, ordinarily, we would agree with this. Except? Except for the fact that all of the, the things that have been going on surrounding qualifying in the last two weeks show that there's other fundamental flaws, too, in the way <laughs> Formula One is running. It is not just the cash this week, and especially not just the cash issue over at Sauber. Yes. Sauber failing financially is not the key problem with Formula One right this minute. Honest- it might be her key problem, though. Honestly, I think that this may have been more of an attempt to keep Sauber relevant. Mm. Think about the timing of this. Okay, yes, we've got all the 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 issues and, and all the stories flying over qualifying and control of the sport and the letters that the drivers wrote, which we'll get to in a second, and Bernie's response back and all of that stuff. And as all of that has evolved over the course of the last 30 to 60 days going back as far as when this proposal for qualifying first came out all of the discussion about the financial distribution and Sauber's money issues and the request that three teams made to get their prize money early and the EU investigation and all of that stuff has disappeared mm-hmm. there's no talk about that anymore the focus has moved on to other places so I think that these comments coming when they did are Monisha trying to add some relevance, especially considering, based on the team's performance, Sauber does not currently have a seat on the strategy group. Force India has the seat. Correct. So they have no say whatsoever in what's going on. It's got to be kind of helpless feeling right now, huh? Yeah. I I understand. I understand. I Certainly, we don't hear a whole lot about Sauber these days anyway. I mean, other teams are outshining them and even their publicity. That can't bode well with their uh, advertisers and their sponsors. So, as we know this week, or as we know last week, the drivers wrote a letter. They did write a letter. The Grand Prix Drivers Association wrote a letter uh, partially prompted by the mess that has been qualifying, complaining about the governance of the sport 
and the management of the sport and the fact that nobody seems to be having a control. Nobody seems to be having a plan. Uh, they have called the current structure obsolete. They've, lot of other words as well and have called for a change to which Bernie as we mentioned last week also wrote a letter appearing to be in support of the driver's position now we posited last week that Bernie's support was only because he wants that control right and he's upset that he's not getting that control well this week um, in a lead up to the race Lee McKenzie over at Channel 4 got to sit down and talk to Bernie and get a little more of Bernie's response and position on the driver's comments, which we thought were rather illuminating. What did Bernie have to say about the driver's letter? Now, before we go into it, I got to apologize for some of the sound quality. There was some background music that they had playing that makes it at points a little hard to hear, and Bernie was mumbling. But uh, yeah, let's hear what Bernie had to say first. I was very happy to see they could write, actually, and spell. So it was delightful. Yeah. So for if you couldn't make out exactly what he said, he said, I was very happy to see that they could write and spell, actually. He was delighted. Delighted. That's what he said. Now, he wrote a letter in support of what the driver's position was. Kind of. Kind of. But. I mean, keep in mind, it did. He just dissed them as intelligent beings. You, you know, it, it did open with a backhanded comment about you know he, he opened it with gentlemen and then something along the lines of I'm not sure I can call you that or, or something along yeah that. I mean it, it was not exactly the nicest letter and he even turned around and questioned the grammar that they used in their letter I mean this was not yeah it was I agree with you but you're a bunch of jerks kind of a kind of a thing but you really want to know what Bernie thinks of the drivers Lee goes on and asks Bernie, what kind of input the drivers had to say. So let's let's play those comments because I think those comments are even more illuminating. Should the drivers have more input into how no, the sport is shaped? Not at all. Why not? Well, what do they know about it? Not no part of it. They drive race cars. Yeah. You just have to let that wash over you for a second. This idea that what do they know about it? They drive race cars. They obviously are not allowed in Bernie's world, in the world of Bernie. They're not allowed to have an opinion about the way the sport is run, about the sport that they give their lives for. Yeah, they don't know anything about No, that. no. Bernie's feeling is these guys are just the hired help. Exactly. So there's no opinion there. And... The BBC's Five Live did an interview this past week on their podcast with Alex Wirtz, the president of the, the Grand Prix Drivers Association, who was one of the, the principal authors and signers of this letter. And at the time when I heard the question, my response was, well, this was – my thought was this is really kind of a stupid question. I don't think we're anywhere near that. But uh, – and I think it was Tom Clarkson who had done the interview. It had asked Alex if there was a chance that the drivers could strike – over this and mm. Alex dismissed and said you know we're not there this isn't th th this isn't that kind of a situation I think we're a long way off from anything like that even remotely happening but the thing is after hearing Bernie's comments right there and and his dismissive view of them 
I think now that that's a whole lot more likely that something like that could happen. If he keeps up with this kind of an attitude, I could see the drivers turning around and saying, you know what, we're not playing this game. I could definitely see that. I could see the teams standing up and saying, we're not playing this game too. I mean, everybody's got a say in the way this thing is put together. And he's upset and he's playing like... I want to take my toys and go home. I mean, and Bernie's played that card too. Yeah. And that's the problem is he thinks he's the only one that's going to be allowed to pick up his toys and go home. Yeah. And I don't think that that plays out in the real world. Now, Charlie Whiting, of all people, has also come out and added his comments regarding the driver's letter. Mm -hmm. Uh, What Charlie had to say was, you know, the driver's in, in his mind, have an adequate amount of forms to make their feelings known, despite the recent satisfaction. Um, he cites, um, well, what he says is, I don't think there needs to be more input from the drivers because what they've got is adequate. They've got many, many chances to talk about the rules with us. I honestly don't see how they could have much more. And, of course, even at the F1 commission level, there is nothing to stop a driver asking their team principal to put their point across because all teams are on that commission, which I I don't see that happening. So, basically, you're going to go to your boss and say, hey, when you go to your boss to vote on this thing that's going to impact your business, make sure you point out my point of view. From from that perspective, I think that's – no, unrealistic. I think that you aren't thinking about it sort of the right way. I think if the drivers were working together with their team principals and saying, you know, this is the reason why I feel so strongly that X, Y, Z should happen. If they have a, a compelling enough argument, their team principals should be listening to them and take that statement, that that viewpoint under advisement in their own way, in their own but, carrying to the thing. It's it's like a representative government type here, concept. Yes, but that's not their role. They're still their boss. I understand and they're still the their boss. the thing is, but- if you are the driver, the employee, and you're going to your boss and saying, you know, boss, this rule change, I don't like, it's not going to benefit me, but the boss's position is, actually, that rule change really benefits our team as an organization. Either they're going to continue to go forth with that proposal, or that just as likely they're going to go, okay, if you don't like it, there are 18 other drivers that I have resumes for sitting on my desk who are more than happy to do the exact same. And, oh, by the way, they're willing to drive for less money than you. I get that. But I think that if the driver has a compelling case, and in this case we're talking about qualifying, where the drivers and the team principals are actually in agreement. Yeah. So I think Charlie's point of if your team principal, you know, you have the voice with your team principal. You can shed, you can tell them what you think. And any driver in the world should be able to go to Toto Wolf or Christian Horner and go, hey, on the grid, this is the way I think this would work, and this is why I don't think this is a great idea. And a team principal should hear them and explain either, yes, I agree with you, or I don't agree with you, and this is why it's good for the team, and be able to have that conversation. That doesn't have to happen in the rulemaking structure. But the drivers do have representation. They should have a voice. They should have yeah. an ability to explain their position because do not forget they sit on the front line. Well, I, you know, I think arguably what would make better sense is that 
a representative of the Grand Prix Drivers Association should conceivably have a seat on the, either the F1 commission or the strategy group, if not both. Now, the drivers can go to the – my understanding is the drivers can go to the strategy group meetings. Mm-hmm. And they hardly ever do. So you right. might as well – And that's one of the other things. It, and, and that's part, partially Charlie's point is that he cites uh, technical and sporting working group meetings as events to which a driver is always invited. He also says that there is also a seat on the FIA Circuits Commission for a Formula One driver, but attendance is not as high as one might like. He also goes on further to say that they do get the opportunity every single race weekend via the driver's briefing to sit and discuss whatever they want to. They don't just talk about what's happened on the track during the day, but they talk about all sorts of things. He says it's a perfect opportunity to discuss anything they wish. And he goes on to say, you know, I'm always happy to talk with them. Had a meeting in Barcelona at the second preseason test, and as you know, quite a few drivers actually turned up for it, which was nice. He's taken drivers out to dinner to have further discussions. From Charlie's perspective, overall, when it comes to the things that are fall under his purview, I think he's 100% right. Mm-hmm. The drivers have plenty of, to- plenty of opportunities to provide input and feedback to him on the things that he has an impact on. They what- may not have the same kind of influence and information sharing with the other things that are outside of Charlie's world. That, that, and that's the thing, it, and that's what I think Charlie misses, is that the, the driver's letter isn't so much focused around what Charlie does and Charlie's things. It's focused around the other pieces of the structure and management and leadership of the sport, and that's not something that Charlie is involved in. So... Now, one of the drivers, because one of the things that we learned this week, and I didn't know this, is that not all of the current drivers on the grid are actually members of the Grand Prix Drivers Association. I kind of thought it was automatic. If you're on the grid, you're a member of the GPDA, and you took part in everything. And turns out that's not the case. One of the drivers who is not a member of the GPTA yet is in support of their actions is Lewis Hamilton. I was a little surprised by that. I I don't fully understand why he's not a member, but I'm sure that there's reasons. Now, Lewis came out and actually had some comments, not some, and and actually he did have some comments on qualifying and some of the other stuff, but the comment that I thought that was most notable this week was actually regarding the proposals coming for 2017 and all this talk of making cars that are five seconds a lot faster. Okay, that sounds like it'd be a great idea. It Faster does, cars is always better racing, right? But Lewis actually came out and said, you know, faster cars aren't the answer here. They're not going to actually make for better racing because the truth of the matter is if you just make the cars faster and you don't account for all the reasons why we don't have more passing, we don't have closer racing, we, we have these big gaps, all you're going to end up with is the same problems on cars that are going around faster. <laughs> so you're telling me yet again we are trying to fix problems that don't exist while ignoring the problems that do exist exactly go home you're drunk and it, you know it was one of those stories that i'm reading this and i'm like what is lewis talking about as i, as I thought about it, i'm like wait a minute actually that makes a whole lot of sense 
But there's more to this story that happened to have come out this week and in qualifying this week that kind of says that maybe faster cars aren't the issue. Oh. And we point that out because, and, and we'll talk a little more about this later, but the pole lap, the, the lap that earned pole position for Lewis this week set a track record for Formula One cars at Bahrain. It was a track record that was set by Mark Webber in a V10 Formula One car. Mm-hmm. And it was broken this week in the brand new, well, now we're three, two, three years into this thing. Turbo it, hybrid. The turbo hybrid that everybody complains is too slow. Yeah. Let that one sink in. Faster cars aren't the answer. And possibly not the problem. Yeah. Now, Renault has come out with their own suggestion. What does Team Banana want? Team Banana, in particular. Cyril Abitbull has called for the the uh, elimination of the fuel capacity limit, believing that it is destroying the positive messages regarding the power unit technology. Now, he argues that the 100-kilogram fuel limit, um, it is conducive to those radio messages that people complain about, that which, by the way, are banned this year, of drivers needing to conserve fuel and having to lift and coast and giving the impression, based on the, the radio messages alone, that drivers are not pushing throughout the race. Never mind the fact that without those radio messages, people don't know whether or not anybody's conserving fuel. Right. So you could solve this problem by not changing the rules of Formula One, but actually changing the broadcast rules. Yeah, which we've done this year. Now, Cyril also says that Formula One isn't an endurance series. He's got he, a good point. He does believe that you leave the fuel flow restriction in place. And there, that, that's still going on. Um, and the thought process there is that by leaving that in, leaving in place the amount of fuel that the engine can get, it, pre- it prevents an arms race. Mm. You know, by by being able to allow the the engine to take on more fuel, you can ramp up horsepower, ramp up all these other things, and the cost for that type of a thing to happen, those costs escalate very very quickly. But by turning around and saying, okay, if you want to carry more fuel so that you can push all the way through the race, you can do that. He thinks that that's a better idea. I'm not completely sure that that would eliminate fuel conservation. <laughs> Because here's the thing. You got to remember that fuel is weight. Right. So the more fuel that you put on the car, the more weight you're putting on the car. And the more weight you're putting on the car, the slower the car gets. So there is a natural incentive for teams to put the barest amount of fuel possible that their predictions say that they can make it through a race. And as a result, if things happen in a manner that they're not necessarily expecting maybe that things are a little closer and as a result they're burning more fuel or they have to just push harder because they had a bad start would put them further back into or whatever now all of a sudden they may run into a situation where they're consuming fuel faster than they expected and then they're stuck in a situation where they've got to oh i don't know conserve fuel i think that the the reality is every team is going to be looking for their sweet spot in the fuel put on board 
They're going to look for as little possible to keep the car light. So maybe the answer isn't a maximum amount of fuel, but a minimum amount of fuel. That, and, and I think that may be the answer, that, that somebody's going to need to calculate for each track what should be a safe amount of fuel for a team to put in a car to push for a significant period of time and still get to the end and have a very high likelihood of having enough fuel left in the car for the fuel sample. Exactly. We were under the impression, Bernie came out and he said this last year, that the deal has been set for tires for 2017, that he has met with, with Pirelli and they have shaken hands, and that Pirelli is the supplier for 2017. This is what he told us. And what Bernie says is what's going to happen, right? There's one minor problem. What's the problem? Here we are at the start of the 2016 season, mm-hmm. getting ready for the start of the second race. Pirelli still does not have a signed contract for 2017. Mm. Does they not have a pen? Well, it, no, it, it's a little more than that. Mm. You know, Pirelli has been told specifically that they need to design different tires for this season. That's part of the rules change. So as a requirement, Pirelli has said, if you want us to design different tires and special tires that can accommodate what you're looking to do and meet the needs that you want, we have to be able to test. Okay. That makes perfect sense. In order to be able to test, we have to have a car that approximates the 2017 race specification. Also you makes know, sense. the 2017 race specification that nobody has agreed to yet. <laughs> oh, so Pirelli needs to invent a tire for a car that has not been decided upon according to rules that have not been agreed upon. I mean, sorry, a car that does not exist based on rules that have not been agreed upon, and they're supposed to magic this out of thin air? Right. Okay. Now, they, they have done some work based on what we have heard the regulations are supposed to be, but whether or not what they have designed is going to work, that they don't know. Um, what, what Paul Hembry has come out and they have said is um, – and I believe this is Paul Henry and not, not Charlie. Uh, no, I'm sorry. This is Charlie Whiting has come out and said, is that they've changed the regulations to specifically allow 12 days of tires testing, which didn't exist before. Charlie says that the tire sizes are all set and that Pirelli has been developing tires in their factory. But there are still a few open points to discuss with regard to which cars will test these tires. Um, Charlie says that they recently set out how they want to test the tires, and they've offered the same to all of the teams. Some of the teams have come back and said, we can't do that mm-hmm. um, because they've asked for a car that's close to a 2017 car. Now, typically, this would be done with a 2015 car with modified track and modified bodywork in order to provide the same level of downforce as expected to be seen in 2017. So it would be sort of a mule car. They've asked all the teams to see if they'd like to do that. Pirelli is offering a certain amount of money for each kilometer they do, so that's the offer. So now they're going through the offers to see who can provide what they feel they will need, and then they'll decide how many teams are able to do that or are willing to do that. And then they'll go back to, to Pirelli and see what that means in terms of the number of days each team will get. So it's an ongoing process. Charlie says that he wouldn't say that it's something that it's stalled. It's something that's very much on their mind. 
You think? <laughs> wow. That sounds like a cluster in the making. Yeah. And, and, and this is something that somebody needs to sort kind of quickly. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine being the the engineer in the factory and woking and getting the call okay this is what I need you to do I need you to take last year's car and modify it to equal the expected downforce of a car we're not entirely sure we have all the regulations for but I need you to make all the modifications this is a car that will never make a track that won't ever run anywhere um, except in this possible testing so Pirelli is going to pay us X number of dollars per kilometer, and that's probably going to be slightly less than what it's going to cost our engineer to re-engineer a 2015 car to become a 2017 prototype. Um, well, yeah. How do you turn around and take a, a 2015 car, modify it for whatever the increased level of downforce is. And oh, by the way, remember that it's not just the downforce that's supposed to increase, but the speed of the car. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I mean, I would assume that for this type of a, of a, uh, a project, they would get additional wind tunnel time to make sure that what they have put together does what, they're cl- what they think it would do. Mm-hmm. I've got to assume that, that by default for this type of a thing, they would get additional wind tunnel time. But you got to remember that wind tunnel time is limited. I think the, the computer simulation time is limited. I, I don't get it. Well, I wonder if there isn't some level of maths being involved here. I only suggest that in terms of if you can't make the car 5% faster, in order to test. I mean, if you just say, okay, it's going to be the same speed, then you may have to approximate the downforce in relation to, because downforce and speed have a relationship. You might have to approximate the downforce to the relation of the speed and mathematically figure out what's going to happen. They may not have something that is a true approximation, but they could get close enough and then mathematically project. And that's the best thing that's a computer simulation is going to do. I mean, that's the best you're going to get yeah. under these types of, of situations. But even, even that, it, you're still asking someone to produce something that will never get used based on rules that are not agreed on. Yeah. I mean, and it's the second race of the season. And yes, we have 21 races this season. The season's a long, full season. You're going to take an engineer off of production production for the next part of the process, the next iteration, well, to do are, this. Odds are this is going to be an engineer who's com- or an engineering team who's coming off the development of the 2017 car to begin with. Well, yes, but he's so. already starting to work on the next iteration. So what happens if he comes? If you know the rules finally get agreed to and they've got a change they weren't predicting, he's not going to be in the mix. He or she. Yeah. Let's be. Let's be uh, politically correct. Okay, so this weekend, race number two, the Bahrain Grand Prix. The race in the desert. You know it's a desert, right? You could tell that by the rain on Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> there was that. <laughs> so this week. You know, let, let, before we start talking about the race, let's talk about some statistics about the track and, and the race and everything. So let's get to that. Okay. 
Let's look at an incomprehensible map of the race course, shall we? I can't make heads or tails out of it. You? Uh, no clue, but no doubt it'll be exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our first round of facts come from our, our, our friends over at Renault Sport F1. Team Banana. Yes, Team Banana. Um, I should start doing things like uh, Channel 4 does all their things. Team Hashtag Banana. Team Banana. <laughs> We'd have to be more active on Twitter than just posting a link when we do something new on the site for that to work. I understand. I understand. You know, that would but, help. Do you know, I, I complete left turn, but I have to tell you, I was we were in the mall the other day, mm-hmm. and I heard a bunch of teenagers literally talking in strict hashtags. Wow. Yeah, and sadly, it's kind of a trend that's catching on in my office. And trust me, hashtag go team is going everywhere. You could always go with hashtag shut up. I go, I go with the hashtag don't care hashtag. <laughs> There's that too. Anyway, so for starters, the lowest starting position for a winner in Bahrain has been fourth. Okay. However, the average starting position for the winner is second. Well, that would explain Nico's uh, thrill at not being pole and saying pole doesn't (laughs) matter in Bahrain. Yeah. Um, The highest G-force at turn 12 for 2.5 seconds is 3.8 G. That's a lot of G. Um, Renault, as a constructor, only as a constructor, has had two victories. Okay. Um, Some interesting facts about Bahrain. I did not know this. I kind of assumed that Bahrain was, you know, just a landmass attached to sub-Saharan Africa or something like that. But no, Bahrain is actually an archipelago of 33 islands. Really? The largest is 55 kilometers long by 18 kilometers wide. You're fascinated by this because archipelago is really fun to say, isn't it? Kind of. And I'm <laughs> sure somebody's going, it's archipelago. I don't know. Shut up. It, it, it is what I said it is. This is my show. Whoa, Bernie, you can just back that <laughs> Bene- truck up. Our show is not a dictatorship. It's a benevolent democracy. Now, there may, or not even a democracy. See, it's a no, benevolent- <laughs> it's a benevolent dictatorship at best. Yeah. We are not a democracy. That's what anyway. you meant to say. Yes. The Bahrain World Trade Center was the first skyscraper in the world to integrate wind turbines into its design. Each turbine is 29 meters in diameter with a capacity of 675 kilowatts via wind power production. The highest point of Bahrain is only 22 meters above sea level. It is called, I am, you know, this time, in this version of our recording of the podcast, I am not going to try and say it in Arabic. I'm just going to let you know the, the English name is the Mountain of Smoke. Okay. In Arabic, Bahrain is the dual form of bar, which means sea. So Al-Bahrain means the two seas, which is attributed to the Sweetwater Springs and sea that surrounds the island or the Garden of Eden. Very interesting. There is an 18% chance of a safety car probability. There have been five winners from pole. The top speed is 335 kilometers per hour, and on average there are 80 gear changes per lap. Now this week our tire selection is the super soft, the soft, and the medium. The lap record, now to be clear, this is the race lap record, not the overall lap record um, in an F1 car, Mm -hmm. because that is different. But the race lap record was set in 2005 by Pedro De La Rosa is 1 minute 31.447 seconds. Okay. Last year, there were 35 overtakes. 
The circuit length is 5.412 kilometers, and the race distance is 308.238 kilometers, and, it, and that's over 57 laps. Now, Renault in Bahrain, now this is both as a constructor and as an engine supplier. They've had 50 starts, 4 wins, 9 podiums, 3 poles, 2 fastest laps, and 222, 220 points. Excellent. Congratulations, Team Banana. Now, you have some stats. I do. Of Masa. Stats and Masas. We all know that I have a particular love for all things stats of Masa. From our dear friends of Williams Martini Racing, mm -hmm. um, the link of cable used to light the Bahrain track could s go around the track that's a 5.4 kilometer track mm -hmm. 92 times. So how long, how, how much is that in cable length? That is. You can't do that in your head? 498 kilometers of cable length. Okay. Are you happy now? <laughs> Are you happy? Now, if you were to go to Bahrain and decided you wanted to go sit on a beach, you may be hard-pressed to find one. Despite but it's it, a desert. It's, it's an island. It's an island desert. Desert in the sand. Something like that. Yeah. Um, however, only 5% of the beaches in all of Bahrain are open to the public. 95% of them are privately owned. Hmm. So, now, we should talk about Masa because I do love my stats of Massa. Massa has led the Bahrain Grand Prix for 102 laps over the course of 11 races. So he has led for 552 kilometers. Okay. And Massa is very unique in Bahrain. He is one of only three drivers to have competed in every Bahrain Grand Prix. Do you know who well, the up other... up until this year. Do you know who the other two are? Well, judging by how long they have been in Formula One. Okay. So your you know, senior statesmen of Formula One are Kimi Raikkonen. Mm -hmm. um, However, Kimi did have a gap in, in his career where he went to go race NASCAR and a few other series, WRC and a few other series. Correct. So, so Kimi, Kimi's probably not it. Um, another one who has been around for quite a long time, Roman Grosjean, but he got kicked out of Formula One, I believe, by Renault, um, <laughs> <laughs> to go race in a junior series before he came back. So it's probably not him. Mark Webber's retired. Yep. He'd be a good thing. He probably was, but last year he would have been retired, not in the... Yeah. Hmm? So what about his buddy, Jensen Button? Uh, yeah, I was going to say, we'd leave Jensen Button. You got to go with Jensen, senior statesman that... Sir Button is. And the other one who has been around a long time, and a matter of fact, has um, some Renault memories, would be one Fernando Alonso. You would be correct. Up until this year. Well, yeah. What is going on with Sir Fernando? Well, for starters... Is he concussed? I just need to know. <laughs> no, at this point, we do not believe he is concussed. But for starters, and I guess... When you think about it, and when I saw this article, I was like, well, duh. <laughs> we got word that he would be getting a new engine after his big crash in, in Melbourne. <laughs> Are you saying that none of the parts were salvageable? Well, as I look at this picture of the remnants of Fernando's car where it's not really clear – 
I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is the rear end of the car, not the front end of the car. And the tire, the, the wheels are kind of twisted around each other. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure at this point, as I look at this again, that this is the rear of the car because I think the air intake is facing the other direction. Um, you think. I You're think. not sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not completely positive here. Um, but there was not enough bits of the engine to be salvaged. So as a result, Fernando is down an engine. Which is a big deal this year. Well, as it was last year when, you know, McLaren used 92 engines last year in their allotment of four. Um, no, they had five last year. They had five last year? Yeah, this year they they're still down used to four. 92 of them. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's more <laughs> engines than they had races, practice sessions, and qualifying sessions. But I say they used 92. Um, so this is one race, one engine, continuing the McLaren counting system. Now... Since you've only got four, preserving your engines are a big deal, and trying to salvage them whenever possible is a big deal. And Ferrari demonstrated this week that just because fire comes shooting out of the airbox of your driver's engine does not mean that you have you have to write off that engine. Apparently, they are able to salvage Kimmy's engine that caught fire uh in the Melbourne race. See, so he this, is not down an engine. This is a question I have, and this is one I think is probably unanswerable to you, from you, but how much of the... I can re- make up an answer. Well, I'm sure you will. <laughs> how much of the engine can be replaced before it's considered an engine replacement? I mean, people rebuild engines all the time for other cars outside of Formula One. How much do you have to have that is salvageable? So my question is, can you replace 50% of the engine? And 74.6%. And you pulled that number out of body parts, didn't you? I did, but I sounded confident, which meant <laughs> <laughs> it's good as being right. <laughs> it may be totally made up, but I'm confident <laughs> I'm glad you are confident in your lie. But I think this is an important question, not one that we actually have to answer, but an important thought process. Yes, fire can shoot out of Kimmy's engine, and he can get sprayed in the face with fire extinguisher fluid, which I find amusing to no end. Um, And then he just casually gets out of the car. Now, granted, that's because he probably didn't know that there was fire over his head. Well, probably, but I'm sure he figured it out when he got shot in the face with the fire extinguisher. It was either that or walk up to the guy and punch him in the face. (laughs) What are you doing? Fire, man. (laughs) So, okay, so they cleaned out the burned bits and they were able to salvage it. Now, the mangled... It's it's just flavored. It's seasoned. It's seasoned. (laughs) It's it's all the char is. It's just flavored. Ignore the char. They really broke in the engine on, on Kimmy's car. It's just flavored. And then you turn around and you look at Alonzo's car and you go, okay, well, I'm not surprised there's nothing of that engine left. Now, so his engine is kaput and broken, but he is not quite kaput, but he's broken, isn't he? Well, you know, we were led to believe, listening to all the coverage and the words that were said (laughs) coming out of Melbourne, that while, yes, he did have a lengthy post-race examination or post-event examination in the uh, the medical tent after his, after his incident, um, we were led to believe that Alonzo was actually in pretty good shape and walked away from it and there were no issues. He was a little sore. It turns out, however, after arriving in Bahrain, that that wasn't the case. 
No, apparently he had many fractured ribs and had a punctured lung. Yeah. Um, now, I think that this might bode the, you know, race car drivers feel no pain, their superpowers and such like that. I also think that I, one of my favorite lines that Alonzo said was why he popped out of the car as fast as he did um, when he stopped rolling. And I got to stop for a second and tell you what his description of the accident was. I saw dust, then I saw ground, then sky, then ground, then sky, then I stopped. I love that description. <laughs> that was all Alonzo yeah. knows of his crash. Dust, ground sky, ground sky, crashed. Um, anyway, he popped out of the car really quickly, and he said that the reason he did was because he knew his mother was watching and she'd be worried. What a good son he is. But I'm wondering if some of that bravado is also why we got so many early reports that he's okay, he's okay, he's okay, he's okay. And now we get all the way to getting checked out for the race, and he's got fractured ribs and a punctured lung and some pneumothorax something or others. Which, you know, I can understand the FIA going, uh, yeah, dude, you shouldn't be racing like this. <laughs> Don't care how well you think you, you, you feel, 3.2 Gs being sustained at any point on some fractured ribs, not good for you. We're here to protect you. We're, we're here to protect you from yourself. Now, how did Alonzo think that he was going to make it through the race well, with his fractured ribs? But before you even get to that, you know, he, he came out at the Thursday press conference and, and he expressed his feelings on the situation. He said, you know, I'm a bit disappointed, obviously. We want to race. We are competitive drivers and we like competition and love the sport. So when you come here and you cannot even try, it is always sad. It is understandable, and I respect the decision. I tried until the last moment to be able to race and at least to try in the practice. There has been some painful days with some pain at home, but I was ready to go through this pain in the car and somehow and make sure I could race. At the end of the day, the pain is manageable if you don't think too much and the adrenaline of driving. There are some other risks the doctors think about. It's a risk factor, I understand, and to minimize everything is the logical thing. I'm a little bit sad for that, but it's the only way to go. So his his pain management plan was to not think about it and adrenaline. Yes, because it is so easy when you get into a Formula One. And yes, admittedly, we haven't driven a Formula One car. But from what we have heard about, you know, the drivers needing to get the radio messages back because it is so complex, it is now so easy for Fernando to just hop into a Formula One car and take off and drive and hit that start without thinking. <laughs> really? Then again, although, you know, you maybe think about he thought it. that he was going to concentrate on the starting procedure so much that he wouldn't be able to think about his ribs hurting. Well, you know, that's it with the starting procedure now involving something. What What is it? 18,000 different steps. Yes. He, he's so focused on hitting those 18,000 steps and not missing step number 16,082 that he can't think about the pain. He, he has not got time for the pain. <laughs> He hasn't got time for the pain. That's what it, that, that's what it, now thankfully the doctors are like, dude, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because those fractured ribs under 3.2 G's sustained for a couple of seconds could become actually broken ribs. And again, the doctors are there to protect Alonzo from Alonzo. Now, 
seems like we're, we're well and good. We can move on and everything is set. But Ron Dennis came out. And he's concussed. No, Ron has not said that. <laughs> I'm convinced that somebody's going to declare that Alonzo is concussed. No, Ron is instead channeling the Texas high school football coach. Okay. He got up, he walked it off, we're good. <laughs> FIA, shut up, man. He, we walked it off, we're okay. <laughs> you're bleeding from your eyeballs, but you're walk okay. It off, walk, man. Hey, walk, walk it off, man. Walk it off. <laughs> so what did no. Ron have to say? Ron, he's not real happy. Ron thinks that the FIA needs to butt out. Oh. Ron's position, he says that two sets of doctors in Spain had cleared Fernando to drive and fly. So we were surprised to get a different interpretation here. We got through yesterday. Fernando was feeling aggrieved that he felt so good that he wanted to drive. Yeah, that's right. He was aggrieved, despite what Fernando just said. Yeah. He was aggrieved. So we approached the FIA and said if we had a new scan taken this morning, and this would be Saturday. So the first scan was taken on Thursday. He said, you know, if we had a new scan taken this morning and this scan supported the position of the doctor five days later, would they then permit him to drive? They said, no, it doesn't matter what the scan showed. He would not be permitted to drive. Because his ribs are going to magically heal in two days? Well, Ron argues that the teams are best placed to judge their driver's fitness. In virtually every team sport in the world, the fitness of the athlete, the football player, the ice hockey player, the skier is determined to be is determined by the team. Not to be able to reevaluate the situation this morning, I didn't feel was very appropriate. I don't think it's an FIA issue, to be honest. I think specialists are there. We go to the world's experts for opinions. We're not going to general practitioners. We're going to experts in their specific field. I don't think the FIA has the ability to field every single expert that's appropriate. So basically, he says that the FIA doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, and they should butt out. He walked it off, man. He's good. Because, yes, in two days, that scan that showed that he still had a punctured lung and fractured ribs, in two days, I, I hate to disappoint you, Ron, they weren't going away. Well, they might have gotten better. They might have gotten better, but they're not going away. I mean, at some point, he could have two scans two days apart and go from fractured ribs to not fractured ribs because at some point he will be two days away from having repaired ribs. However, however, the the multitude of things that I should mention is that, of course, the team and their adrenaline junkie drivers should totally be in charge of determining fitness for the ability to drive after a massive crash like that. Yeah, they should totally be able to, to determine whether or not they could take on more adrenaline and block out the pain with an 18-step starting procedure. Well, Fernando also said that he's not even sure he's going to get cleared to race in, in China. So this is fairly significant. But Ron went on. It gets better. Ron, Ron went on. Ron needs to shut up he sometimes. Says, he says, the question is, would Fernando have been a danger to other drivers? If you've got a cracked rib and you want to drive with it, it's your business. It all becomes subjective. And that's the bit I don't like. Yes, if you have a cracked rib and you want to go and hop in your Toyota Tercel and go driving down the freeway, absolutely, it's your business. But if you have a cracked rib and you want to get in a Formula One car and go driving at 200 plus 
kilometers an hour and take on multiple G's for two straight hours. And that pain is quite possibly very distracting to what you're doing. I'm thinking it's more than just your business. The problem is if he hits that 3G turn and those fractured ribs become broken ribs or cracked ribs and punctures a lung and he spins out because he's passed out from the pain because, I mean, sorry, adrenaline won't stop you from passing out from the pain. Yeah. He passes out from the pain. He spins out. He causes a seven-car collision. He could probably possibly kill someone. Or even worse than that, you know, he spins out, goes into the wall over by the grandstands, and parts of that car go flying into the grandstands and spectators get injured. Mm-hmm. Is bad, bad stuff. Right. So, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Ron Dennis, sh- shut up. Yeah. And if you have a passed out driver inside of a car that could possibly catch on fire? Yeah. He can't, he can't get himself out at that point. Well, no, then everybody will just question as to whether or not the halo is appropriate. Yeah. Moving on. Okay. So another, this was a story that when I saw this, the beginning of the week, I was like, well, you know, it's been a while since somebody at McLaren's come forward and and put some bravado about their performance. You wanted to mock this story at the beginning of the week. I, I really did. Because admittedly, while McLaren has done better, they're still not where you would expect McLaren to be. They're out of place. Yes. But. Eric Boulier came forward and, and said that um, the car hasn't met its potential yet, and that they expect that things to get much, much better. And when I first read this, I'm like, yeah, okay, so you're, you're this far from calling for podiums at the end of the season again, and we know where that's going to go. <laughs> but then free practice two comes around, and Jensen Button manages to stick the car in third. <laughs> Now, I caution, there's like a thousand things that could influence free practice, too. Yeah. But it's still impressive. He didn't turn in slow times. Now, we should also mention that without Jensen or or without uh, Fernando running, Stoffel Van Dorn comes in to take his place. Okay, I have to tell you that every time I see his name written out, it looks like Stouffer's and I get a little hungry inside. (laughs) You want a TV dinner now? I want a TV dinner to watch Stouffer's Van Dorn. All right. <laughs> but Stoffel came out, and besides you know, this being his F1 debut with a lot to prove here, not only did he manage to get the McLaren into Q2, which but Jensen did as well, he out-qualified Jensen. He did. Now, he has a lot to prove, but universally across every commentator that we listened to yesterday— um, Stoffel is apparently considered one of the best drivers not currently on the grid. He's got um, he's got GP two he's got, wins. Yeah, well, he's he's won the championship at GP two. Um, he's raced against Jolian Palma, and by the way, beaten Jolian Palma. Exactly. He's got, I believe, DTM experience as well. He's done quite a bit of racing. He, like you said, he's considered the highest rated driver out there who does not have a Formula One seat. I even believe that Jensen Button made the comment that he was the kind of drivers that Formula One should be looking for. Yeah. 
Um, and he was a candidate for Jensen's seat. And, and still may be a candidate because Alonzo's got a contract. Jensen does not for next year. Yeah. So as the F1 steering wheel turns. So let's talk about the ongoing debacle. That's the only way really to talk about the qualifying situation. Okay. Now, when we first recorded this, all we knew was that there was going to be a meeting on Sunday morning. Now, as we record this a second time, that meeting has happened. So we will get to where things stand. But let's get go back to how we ended up in the latest version of this mess. Okay. How did we get here? You know, last week we knew that uh, both Toto Wolf and Christian Horner, uh, on behalf of Red Bull and Mercedes, or Mercedes and Red Bull respectively, voted against the proposed changes that were brought forth by the FIA for qualifying. And as a result this week, we ended up with the same disastrous-looking qualifying that we had in Melbourne. We now know why that happened. Okay, so explain it to me, because last week, Toto and Christian were at the forefront of every broadcast saying that this was an awful qualifying, this should have never happened in the first place, it was being forced down our throats, the the teams all met on Sunday morning um, in Melbourne, in Melbourne, and they unexpectedly agreed. They unanimously agreed to re- uh, revert the qualifying format back to the 2015 format. Right. And that was the proposal that they put forth together as the F1 strategy group. Okay. Unfortunately, the team's meeting as the F1 strategy group was missing two key players. It was missing Bernie and it was missing Jean Todd at the FIA. Because neither of them happened to go to the Melbourne race. Right. So the actual proposal that was put forth by Jean Todd and Bernie for voting for an electronic vote last week was not to revert back to the 2015 qualifying. What was put forward was a proposal to either keep the current qualifying as is or reformat the qualifying so that Q1 and Q2 were the, were the same as they were in Melbourne. However, Q3 would go to the 2015 format. That was deemed unacceptable. Mercedes and Red Bull's position, and I agree with that position, is it is an all-or-nothing thing. Either you make the 2015, the, the 2016 qualifying go away completely, or you stay with what we had. So why do you think that Jean Todd and Bernie were so insistent on this uh, this solution, which was not what the teams originally proposed. It was not what the fans seemed to want. Why do you think they're insistent on this? Well, the BBC's, and, and it was Andy Benson over at BBC came out. He believes that what happened was Jean Todd was pissed. Oh. Jean Todd took, uh, interpreted the actions that the teams took the Sunday after the Melbourne race was the teams dictating terms and dictating rules to him and to the FIA. And as a result, because of the, the way this structure is put into place, his proposal, along with Bernie, he, he teamed up with Bernie to overrule what the teams put forth. Now, the requirement at this point in, in the season is, since the season has started, any changes that are made in season to the rules have to be done unanimously. 
Mm-hmm. So the minute that Mercedes and Red Bull expressed dissent and voted against it, even though there was a majority, to change it, that killed the proposal. Okay. So we've got some more words from Bernie on this. And actually, you know what, before we get to the words on that, I should also mention that the drivers have come out and said that they are were completely stunned by this U-turn. They expected everything to get reverted. They expected what the teams w- were pushing to go through. They supported the reverting to the 2015 thing. So for this to happen, they were caught by surprise by it. Oh, yeah. So now let's have some words from Bernie. Uh, Bernie met with Eddie Jordan this week uh, to discuss a variety of topics, but the main one of interest was truly how we got here. Okay. So let, let's hear what Bernie and Eddie had to talk about. Tell me how we arrived at this qualifying we have in what Australia. We call now, which actually I was the idiot that put it together, a strategy group where there's six votes for the FIA, six votes for us as commercial rights holder, and the teams have six votes. And uh, amongst many, many things that were on the agenda for discussion, this was one of them. And I think it was the FIA that put this forward. And I think all of us, certainly the teams were concerned that maybe I would campaign on one or two things that I wanted. And they thought we'd better to take this because it seems harmless compared to what could happen. Of all the things that didn't need changing, was the qualifying. Has been good for a long time. Fantastic. A lot of this was a problem with the teams, not the qualifying. Um, And maybe we shouldn't dump it now. What, the new one? Yeah, the one we The knockout system. Have, have a look at it and see how it works. Try it another way. It's a prototype. We will try so and see. So we will be running... The, the teams should learn how it works. So if we stay the same format yeah. as us... I think we should. As Australia, yeah, you will be should. talking to the teams yeah. that it's compulsory for them to continue. We have to get FIA, us, and the teams to agree to change it. So it won't happen. There was a lot packed into that. Okay. So did you hear the part that Bernie said that when they met, this was a proposed, the qualifying change was a proposal from the FIA, and the teams felt that they could take this as opposed to some of the other changes Bernie wanted to make? Yeah. And, you know, I I wrote an article on the website, you can go check it out, um, of the proposals that Bernie is floating as replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, one is success time ballast, where basically if you win a race that the next qualifying, you get a time penalty. And you know, talked about on, on this in the article what my views of that are. We, we don't agree with it. We think it's a terrible, 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 terrible idea. Um, and odds are the way it would be implemented probably is going to make things worse. Yeah. And you're going to see a disincentive for teams to win races, but to find ways to consistently end up on a podium instead because that keeps them competitive. Well, I, I'm i sure that not knowing the details of like how far back the, the time ballast would be and things like that, but I'm pretty sure that it doesn't take a boffin very long with a pen and piece of paper to figure out that consistently getting third and taking a smaller time ballast – or taking your two drivers and flopping them between first and fourth 
um, each race, if they could consistently get first and fourth each race, you could win the constructors Mm -hmm. and you could actually wind up with somebody winning the driver's championship who never ranked higher than third on the podium. Yeah. I mean, if there's enough consistency there on the podium, that is absolutely what could happen. And keep in mind, the whole goal of the the theory behind the goal of this is to increase passing on the track. You're going to put your best drivers in the mid-pack so that they would have to fight their way to the front. Except for the one problem that the one thing that they are not addressing with any of the rules is the fact that the arrow is so sensitive on these cars that they can't get close enough to pass. Well, it's not just the passing on the track. It's also because Bernie wants... wants to do whatever he can to make sure that the title isn't decided until the last race of the season. That's why we had the double points and why we had all these, you know, some, some of these other things that he has put forth. So anything that he can do to, to shake it up and prevent uh, drivers winning multiple races in a row, he wants to do that. Well, I so by, by stuffing a successful driver deeper into the pack— that plays into his hand and into his desire of, you know, not having Mercedes win a constructors championship with five races left in the season. Well, I can understand that. I really can. I can understand the theory behind it. But where was all of this complaint when Sebastian Vettel was winning the races, three and four races before the end of the season? There was some. There, and, and that was why we had double points was for that very reason. But, Yeah. That's, but there was other stuff that were that were very key in there. Yeah. Um, first off, he claims that FIA made that proposal. Yes, he did. I have a sneaking feeling that FIA may have made that proposal potentially to head off mm. some of the other crap that Bernie has come up with. Either that, or he's blaming the FIA for this mess in the first place. He freely, and this is one of the things that bugs me. I mean, he mentions it in here. He freely admits that qualifying at didn't need to be changed. We had great sessions. It was working phenomenally. Mm-hmm. And then he turns around and goes, but I had other proposals to change it. Why did you, why are, did we need these proposals? Hey, and, and Eddie won't. Push Bernie. I mean, there's a limit to how far Eddie will push Bernie. Well, he, I think he, that's why Eddie gets the interview. Yeah, that in mind. Eddie knows that that it's best to let Bernie go and stick his own foot in it than to try and force Bernie into it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that was where the question that needed to be asked was why was there a need to change qualifying in the first place? Why of all the things that needed to be, and and he partially hits it there, why of all the things that needed to be addressed is it qualifying we're focusing on? Well, I think that the answer to that is very simple. He feels like if you can address some of the qualifying and push people back in the grid, you get a different race day. You affect race day. Yeah, but... Again, why are we looking for ways to penalize success as opposed to improving the race? And improving the race will not, does not necessarily come with penalizing those who are being successful. It's finding ways to allow others to become successful. Right. And to achieve that success and not by handing them a trophy. I think you're exactly right. But that's the fact that you and I agree is probably why we're not running... Yeah. So 
there there was a meeting after Bahrain qualifying, which arguably was slightly better at points. I think Q3 was better this week than Melbourne's qualifying. Cars were out on the track longer. There was a need for cars to be out on the track longer. But Q2, I think, was worse, and Q3 was worse. Well, I think that... It's still there was full nine minutes in Q3 without any cars on track. Yeah. Um, the fact that the the four top leaders felt like they could get a faster time on the track and they went out twice in Q3 is the only reason why we had people on the track at three minutes left in qualifying. And that was the last time we had anybody on the track. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that part of the problem with this qualifying is that if you are not really close to the end of a really great flying lap and you're on the bubble to get knocked out, you're going to be knocked out. There's not enough time in the process of being knocked out to get fresh tires and, and get a lap in. Um, if a lap takes one thirty to do and you only have 90 seconds, you have to be on that lap when you hit the bubble to make a difference. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. That's part of the math problem that they've got. There's no time for fresh tires. There's no time for making sure fuel is in there. Teams are chewing up tires because there's not enough tires to go around now. And, you know, they don't have that option to use new soft tires during the race either. It it screws up the tire allocations. This is just, it's not the way to go. Well, and that's the other thing is that historically in Q1, the top teams would be out on the harder tire not using a set of soft tires in Q3 because they didn't have to. And they had this straight line speed to be able to not use up a set. Well, they can't do that now. They have to go out. Everybody's got to go out on their softest tire. Everybody's got to chew up sets of tires. And you only get one good lap. At qualifying speeds, you only get one lap on those tires. So meeting was held Sunday morning, pre-race. And they still haven't come up with an agreement. (laughs) I I mean, at, at this point, I think this is all a matter of control. It is. It's it's become a pissing contest. Um, they haven't reached an agreement to change the qualifying. It was a 90-minute meeting. They've agreed to talk again on Thursday to find a solution, um, and that will allow them to evaluate proposals, several proposals that have been discussed. Um, Bernie has not uh, spoken about it, but uh, what it looks like is that there's two options now. Um, one is to obviously stay with this crappy format, which appears to be what Bernie wants from that discussion. Or another option would be a modified version of the 2015 format. The thought here being, one of the things that I guess that they're trying to deal with is the 2015 format or or the older format, where it used to get criticized is that a lot of times the beginning of the qualifying session, there were not cars out on track. Right. Cars would wait because they were conserving tire, or teams would wait because they were conserving tires, or for a variety of reasons, and not go out until the later period of the track of the session. Now, yeah, that meant that it wasn't exciting the whole way through the session. However, on the other hand, I think the closing 
minutes of and closing seconds of a qualifying session were fantastic mm-hmm. as you ended up with four, five, six cars on track after the, the checkered flag had waved and times were just falling left and right and, and positions were, were swapping. I, I mean, it truly was suspenseful. So the thought by coming up with this knockout qualifying was that, you know, maybe we'd have teams out on a track a bit more often, but there's no need for that. So the latest proposal that it seems like that they're looking at now is a modified version of the 2015 qualifying where your actual qualifying time would be based not on your fastest lap, but on your fastest two laps. With the thought being that between the aggregate, and, and I'm guessing it's the average of those two laps, would be what your time would be. Okay. That's the proposal that they're looking at now. However, it has become clear that the FIA and potentially Bernie is not willing at all to accept reverting back to straight 2015 and older rules. That's where it's become a, we have dug into the point that we're not looking, we're not willing to look for what is the best for the sport. Yeah. We are now looking for whatever we can do to exercise our control again. And that's what I think this is. This is trying to force the teams to get them to do a change based on what Bernie and John Todd want. The problem is you're forcing either you give them what they want or you leave this crappy format in place that is just going to eliminate fans and destroy the sport. Exactly. Yeah. I agree. So real quick, because we have run very long. Oh. Um, Qualifying. Lewis Hamilton gets the pole and gets the pole with a record-setting lap in Bahrain. Blistering. Um, one twenty actually managed to get down into the one twenty nines, setting a track record for an F one car, breaking as we mentioned earlier, um, Mark Webber's lap set in a V ten. Correct. Which I th- truly needs to negate any complaints about these cars being too slow. I know. Um, Nico Rosberg right behind him, Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen rounding out the second row. Um, Seb thinks that this is a good position for him. <laughs> um, he thinks he's banking on another round of poor starts from the Mercedes so that they can jump ahead. Um, it doesn't look like they have really closed the gap, but it certainly appears that if the Ferraris can get up front, they've got a fighting chance of holding off the Mercedes. Yes. So we'll see how that works out. Um, Nico Hulkenberg managed to get himself into Q3, which it sounds like is actually worse for Force India and better for Roman Grosjean, who he bumped out. Right, because the difference between being 8th and ninth is that you get to pick your, the tires you start on if you don't make it into Q3. As opposed the, to using your Q3 tires. Right. So the goal was for Nico Hulkenberg to make P9, but he went a little too fast and made P8. Yeah, so this actually works out a little better for Roman Grosjean and his Haas. Correct. Now, um, back to my dear friend Massa and our Williams boys. Mm-hmm. They are sitting at P6 and P7. Yep. And um, Daniel Ricardo, you know, despite what what uh, Red Bull wanted us to think and that them setting uh, expectations rather low – Put the car in fifth. The Toro Rossos are nowhere to be seen. 
Yes. Now, granted, this is a race that Toro Rosso has not ever scored a single point in. <laughs> ever. In the history of Toro Rosso, they haven't scored a point. But as it stands right now, Daniel Ricardo is performing much better with his Tag Heuer-branded Renault engine than anybody ever expected. Well, go Danny. So uh, with that, you know, like I said, we're running long. We haven't seen the race yet. We did watch IndyCar around an oval. Short oval at that. Yeah. Um, we have opinions and views, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week when it's an off week for F1 and we have time to talk about Indy a little bit. Um, we have thoughts. I will just leave it at, at we have thoughts. But we did watch the race. Um, I will freely admit, and this will be the, the tease for listening to next week, we didn't think it was going to be as it did not turn out to be as boring as we thought it was going to be. Yeah, it, it was better than we expected. It wasn't a great race, but it was it was okay. Um, we want to hear from you. Leave us a comment over either on the Facebook page, uh, in the show notes over at uh, blokeandabird.com, or even at the, the post I wrote over at blokeandabird.com, what you think of the qualifying situation and what the end result is going to be, what they're trying to do. We want to we hear what everybody else thinks. And is this really about to be the death of F1 or is something else going to happen here? Um, but uh, other than that, I think it's time to cue Barbie. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. Whew.